Thank you, Lisa and worship team for leading us in song. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Isaiah. It's on page 594 in the Pew Bible. We're in Isaiah 34 and 35. Isaiah 34 and 35. The good thing about the passage this morning is that there aren't a bunch of foreign and strange names that I have to fumble through up here. But though it is lacking in strange and foreign names, it, is, it makes up for it in, in substance and in sober matters. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're in Isaiah 34 and 35. It's on page 594 in the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord. Draw near, O nations, to hear. And give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For Yahweh is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Yahweh has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat." For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there's no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. A wild animal shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. 
There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of Yahweh. Not one of these shall be missing, not, none shall be without her mate, for the mouth of Yahweh has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, his hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the the weak hands and make firm the feeble needs. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his aid. Father, You are so great and so good. And we simply are not. We are weak and frail. We are prone to sin and to unbelief. And so we desperately need the help of your spirit. And we need the administration of your grace in these moments. Father, even though we are undeserving, we know that we can call out to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And even though we haven't done anything to merit your favor, we know that what Jesus has done for us um, allows us to have your favor. And so God, would you help us in these moments? Would you help me to communicate your word in a way that is clear and helpful for my friends who sit in this room? 
And would you help all of us to receive the things that you have for us in your word? Would you help us to have open hearts and open minds to the things that you would have to say to us? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's suppose, and I think we can do this fairly easily in our imaginations, let's just suppose that God was able to take over the news channels and the news networks across the globe. Let's just suppose that he had a message for the world, and the way that he would do that is through these global news channels and networks. In Canada, he would take over the CBC In America, he would take over Fox News and CNN. Perhaps it would be the BBC in the UK, Sky News in Australia, NHK in Japan. If you're in Europe, it might be Euro News or Al Jazeera in the Arab-speaking world. So in this scenario, with the world listening, what would God say? Would it be a word of praise I am so impressed with the progress of humanity over the centuries, and particularly in this modern era. Would it be a word of affirmation? You're all wonderful people. And for the most part, many of you just need to keep on doing what you're doing. Great job. Would would it be a word of unconditional love? I accept you no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, and no matter who you worship? Would it be a call to unity? What the world needs more of right now is acceptance and tolerance. And certainly there's no place for judgment or telling others that they are wrong. We we just simply need to get along. Would it be a word of universal hope? Just hang in there. I know that the last two years have been particularly difficult, but but everything will work out in the end. What would God say? I am not a prophet, but Isaiah was. News anchors didn't exist back then, but Yahweh did. And in our text, Yahweh summons the world and invites them to an assembly to hear his word. What did he say? And contrary to popular belief, Yahweh does not provide a glowing review of the world. Nor does he declare a universal and unconditional affirmation of the people of the world. No, the things that he has to say are quite dire. And Yahweh would have gotten in trouble with many of our mothers because he has nothing nice to say about the nations. If you're taking notes this morning, the first point will be the desert in chapter 34. The desert in chapter 34. If you've been with us through the Isaiah series, you you should have picked up on a few things. One of those things is that Yahweh, by and large, is unhappy with the nations. Okay? And if you didn't pick up on that, either this is your first Sunday here, or you've been completely tuned out during the Isaiah series, because that's been loud and clear. Yahweh is unhappy with the nations. But it's not just a capricious sort of, oh, I don't like the nations, I only like my Israel. It is 
for just reasons. It is for um, reasonable um, it is, is, for, is because the, the nations have done things that merit Yahweh's displeasure. They have rebelled against him. They have acted in pompous pride. They are idolaters and worship false gods. They take advantage of the weak and vulnerable. They use their power to serve themselves. They shed innocent blood. They are ferocious beasts in terms of the way that they treat other nations, and they mistreat particularly the chosen people of Israel. And as a result of their sin and rebellion, the missile of Yahweh's anger and, and judgment are laser beam pointed at the foreheads of the nations. And it's quite graphic here. I'm not sure if you picked up on that as I was reading. I'm not making this up. This is right in the Bible. It's in this text of Isaiah, but it is quite graphic. The children are out of here, so I think I can comment on it just briefly. But the dead bodies are piled up so high that it causes a stench in the land. The carnage is so great that blood flows down the mountains. And as easily as the leaves fall from the trees in autumn, the hosts or the stars or perhaps the gods of the nations will fall and come to nothing. Judgment is coming and it is inevitable. And just as you close up a book and put it back on the shelf once you are done with it, and so history will come to a close when Yahweh rolls up the sky as a scroll. And the point here is that things will not go on forever and ever as they are. According to the Bible, history is linear, it's headed somewhere, it's not cyclical like a cosmic hamster wheel. And, and one of the things that helps us in the book of Isaiah is that you have to understand is that Isaiah goes back and forth between talking about historical events concerning the nations. In our text, we're probably around 700 B.C., and he also moves to talking about the cosmic implications of the things that he is saying. And so the, the little judgments that nations like Edom or nations like Assyria would have endured in history are actually small foretastes of the coming cosmic judgment that Yahweh will bring upon the whole world. And I think that's more what's in view in our text. Judgment is coming. And it is inevitable. Are you ready for it? And then Isaiah focuses attention on this one particular nation called Edom. Edom was one of the nations that neighbored Israel. And if you know the Old Testament, then you know that Edom was a brother nation to Israel. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And Jacob issued Israel. And Esau issued Israel. Edom. And I won't get into all their history, but Edom is appropriately called out here because even though there were bigger and larger, more significant nations that opposed Israel, there was no nation that opposed Israel as consistently and for as long as Edom had. To put it simply then, then Edom represents all nations and all people that oppose Israel. Edom is a stand-in for all human beings that oppose God and his covenant 
people. And so when you see Edom, don't think, okay, well, that was just, this is just a word for a small nation that neighbored Israel 2,700 years ago. I actually think that Edom here is a stand-in for all peoples and all nations of all times that oppose God and his chosen people and of his purposes. And there's a lot in this section. I'm sure you heard it as I was reading. Let me draw just, just out for us two images. And again, it's gory. And it's gruesome, and it's meant to be that way. The first image is that of Yahweh butchering the people of Edom, like animals for a sacrifice. His sword, his knife is drenched in blood, and it is covered in animal fat. This is taking place in Bozrah, which would have been the capital of Edom, And there are animals mentioned here which would have not normally been used in sacrifice, which indicates the totality of the destruction that is coming upon Edom and those like Edom. The thirst of the land is quenched with blood. The hunger of the soil is satisfied with the fat of animals. Judgment is coming, and it is inescapable. Are you ready? So we're given this gruesome image of slaughter, and then we have this picture of what I call uncreation or decreation. Let me just sort of paraphrase. The water supplies are dried up. The land will be destroyed by fire. It will be like an abandoned barn taken over by birds and rodents. Yahweh will use a measuring line and a plumb line to undo his good work of creation, and he will bring the land into chaos and emptiness. The kings and the princes will be forgotten forever. Their palaces and their fortresses will be run over with thorns and thistles and in animal-like, animal farm-like fashion. The kingdom will be ruled by wild dogs and ostriches. Wild beasts and hyenas will rule the land. I think what Isaiah is saying here is that in the first image, Isaiah is saying that sin demands sacrifice. And in the second image, Isaiah is saying, sin yields destruction. And the point that Isaiah is making here is that all sin, whether Edom's or Syria's, whether it's national sin or individual sin, whether it's 8th century BC sin or AD 21st century sin, the nature of sin is that it results in devastation and destruction. The end of sin is death and all its horrendous accompanying consequences. Isaiah wants you to be warned of the horrors that await those who reject Yahweh, of the humiliation that awaits those who oppose Yahweh's purposes, and of the inevitable destruction that accompanies those who go their own way. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, that sounds... A bit harsh. I came here to be inspired today, and this is what the preacher is talking about? I don't don't quite like the way that you're talking about God, preacher. That's not the God that I believe in. And and if you're thinking in that vein right now, let, let me ask you a question. If God is only allowed to speak warm and positive words to you, if, if God must fit a certain mold for him to be acceptable in your mind and in your heart, then is he not a God of your own making? 
These things are tough for us to hear. They're unpalatable to our modern sensibilities. They they seem like things of an era gone by. Why in the world are we talking about divine judgment in the 21st century? But when the Bible says God is like this, and you say, no, God cannot be like that, and the Bible says, why is that? And you say, because I don't like that then is that not a God of your own making? And and I think this is really important because if the God that we worship or the gods that we uh, devote our allegiance to are simply the combination of your thoughts with my thoughts, what a horrible thought. We need to be burdened, my friends, to not design and erect the God of our own making, whether with our hands or in our minds. We must allow God to define who he is and what he is like. We must allow his word to fashion our thoughts about him. Even when that picture of God is unpalatable to our modern sensibilities. I want you to know this very clearly. And I hope that you heard it and saw it in chapter 34 of Isaiah. I'm not making this up. I have no agenda I have, I, I'm not frustrated or angry or anything like that. I'm just trying to expose you to Isaiah 34, and I think this is what Isaiah would want you to know. If you're a person who rejects the God of the Bible, if you're a person who disbelieves the gospel, if you're a person who pursues sin as a way of life, if you're a person who opposes his purposes, if you're a person who worships other gods, if you're a person who rejects his lordship over your life, if you're a person who worships other gods, if you're a person who mistreats his people, and you desire to remain in that condition, God does not approve of you. God is not pleased with you. And in fact, in a very real and sobering sense, God is actually against you. That's chapter 34. But is that all? This broadcast to the world of divine judgment, the news feed to the world that Yahweh is angry with the nations for their sin and for their idolatry and for their mistreatment of Israel, Well, it's not. I mean, it would have been if James only gave me chapter 34, but he also gave me chapter 35, which which means then that we can end this sermon on a brighter note. You see, Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 35 serve as a sort of conclusion to this broader section of Isaiah, Isaiah 13 through 35. And over the past several months, we've been considering those sections and sort of in a final climactic fashion, before he moves on to to chapter 36, Isaiah wants to cement in our minds these two possible responses to his word and the two possible outcomes for humanity. On the one hand, for those who would reject Yahweh and his ways, there is a desert, which we have just spoken of. But on the other hand, if you are a person who embraces Yahweh and who devotes yourself to Yahweh and who are committed to his ways, then, await, then awaiting you or what awaits you in the future is a garden. 
And I would imagine that for most in this room, for most people who belong to this church and who would call Maple Avenue Baptist Church their home, I would imagine that for many of us, what awaits us is not the desert, praise the Lord, but this garden of chapter 35. And so I would like to, I think Isaiah would like to give you hope. And the way that he does that is that he gets out his pen and he sketches for us, or he, I should say he writes out for us, not a theological treatise, of eschatology, but he writes a poem to etch into your mind and into my mind and into our hearts, to inscribe into our, the core of our being what awaits us in the future as believers. If you're taking notes, this is the second point, the garden of chapter 35, the garden of chapter 35. <laughs> I just walked through this together. The, again, the imagery is potent, but this time in a different way. Purple and yellow flowers will blossom in the desolate desert. The strong cedar trees of Lebanon will sprout from the earth. And the lush plains of Sharon will be both beautiful and plentiful. Winter is giving way to spring. The desert is becoming a garden, and Yahweh is displaying his beauty and glory for all to see. Friends, the Bible assures us that there is something better, and there is something more. There is something beyond this world, and there is something better than this world, at least in the way we know and experience it. But, but how do we make sense of life in this broken and barren world, and not the... And, Sorry, how do we make sense of life when we live in this broken and barren world and not the blessed and bountiful world that Isaiah talks about? How do we keep going when we are met with opposition? How, how do we gain courage when the world seems to be against us? How do we muster the strength when we are being pushed to the margins of society? How do we retain hope when the light seems to be getting dinner, dimmer? When we feel helpless and incompetent to do anything, and when our minds are troubled because of the tumult of our world, and when our hearts are afraid, what we need is a vision of Yahweh. He says, be strong, Isaiah says, fear not. And if you are in Christ this morning, I do believe that these words are for you. Be strong, fear not, O Christian. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Friends, if you have faith in Christ, while we might seem like an odd bunch for gathering for church this Sunday morning, it is through the church that God is advancing his purposes in this world. While you might be anxious and nervous about the state of the world, Jesus rules over the nations and has been appointed the judge of the world. While others might warn you that you will be on the wrong side of history, it is they who will be met with God's judgment at the end of history. While cultural tastes are becoming ever increasingly hostile towards the Christian faith, Jesus has promised that he is ever with us as we carry out his mission. And as sickness Loss and sadness disrupt our homes. God reminds us that this is not our ultimate home. 
Be strong, O Christian. He will come. He will come and save you. There was an ancient pastor named Polycarp. And he was the bishop of Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir in Turkey. And towards the end of his life, the Roman authorities were after him. And so his friends kind of convince him to go out to this house, which is outside of the city, and he's hiding away there. But eventually, the officials, the guards, come to arrest him. They arrive at the home. And upon the guards' arrival at the home, Polycarp orders a table to be set with food and drink for his arresters. And he requests that he can spend one hour in prayer to God. They oblige and they say, yes, that's fine. And so he spends that hour or so in prayer. And when they heard his prayers, they were so amazed, the guards were, at his piety that many of them regretted coming after him. But they had a job to do, and so they transport Polycarp from the house outside the city to the stadium within the city. And on the way, the captain and his father are trying to convince Polycarp to renounce the faith and to, 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 to renounce Christ. And if he does, then he would be spared. But Polycarp is resolved. They arrive at the city. Polycarp is ousted out of the carriage, and he injures his leg as a result. And you have to be mindful that he's actually an 86-year-old man at this point. He is an elderly man. But he marches towards the stadium as if nothing had happened to him with commitment and with resolve. And at this point in the account, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, he hears a voice which says, Be strong, Polycarp, and courageous. Polycarp eventually comes before the proconsul, which would have been like a governor or like an official of the Roman uh, government, and, and, and he says, have respect for your age, Polycarp. Swear by the divine power of Caesar, swear the oath, and I will release you, revile Christ. <laughs> and this was Polycarp's response. For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul goes on to threaten the elderly pastor with wild beasts and then with fire to be burned on a pyre. And here was Polycarp's reply. You, proconsul, threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished. And you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. The people gather the materials, they place them on the stake, they burn him, and then they eventually stab him and Polycarp dies as a martyr for the crime of confessing to be a Christian. Polycarp's resolve came from the knowledge that his oppressors would meet the judgment of God one day, and his confidence came from the fact that even though he would face death by martyrdom, God would receive him into the heavenly realms. And though our trials may not be as intense or severe, we too can have courage in the midst of a culture that wants to silence and marginalize us. We too can have confidence that God will not spare anything good thing from us. 
And we too can have hope because God will save us from our sin and sorrow, if not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. To switch gears just slightly, have you ever wondered why Jesus performed miracles? And and, and related to that, have you ever wondered why it is that in the New Testament, the miracles of Jesus seem to be so concentrated, so frequent, and, and, and so regular, and that just simply doesn't seem to be the case today? And I'm not denying that God cannot perform miracles or that he hasn't throughout church history. I'm just saying, and I think all of us would agree, that seemingly there's something different between New Testament times when Jesus seems to be performing miracles all the time for everybody and anybody who would come to him, and our day where those miracles don't seem to be as prevalent and as regular. Jesus did perform miracles. We know that from the Gospels. He fed massive crowds by miraculously multiplying fish and bread. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He made a lame man walk. He opened the ears of a deaf man. He opened the eyes of a blind man. He revived the life of a dead man. Why did Jesus do these things? And, and you probably would have your answers, and they'd probably be right, I'm assuming, if you know your Bibles. But you might say, well, Jesus, he performed these miracles to show that he was unique. He was more than a carpenter, as the book title says. He was special. He was peculiar. You, you might go further and say, yes, these miracles show, demonstrate, prove that he was deity, They demonstrate that he is the long-promised Messiah of the Old Testament. That nobody in history could do the things that he did. Or you might take a different angle and you might say, Jesus performed miracles to show his compassion towards the people. He He didn't want the crowd to go away hungry because they had to travel for days afterwards and that's what precipitated the feeding of the 5,000. He had compassion on the father who came to him and begged him to heal his daughter who was on her deathbed. He had compassion on the mother who had just lost her son, and so he raised that son from the dead and handed him to his mother. And I would say yes and amen to all those reasons of why Jesus performed miracles. It was to demonstrate his uniqueness. It was to validate or to prove his deity. It was to show and to to give evidence to the fact that he is the long-promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And obviously and very clearly, it evidences his love, his care, and his compassion for the people that were in front of him. But I think there's another key reason Jesus performed miracles during his earthly ministry and a reason that I think is often missed. And that was to show the conditions that would be present when he would be rightly acknowledged as king in his kingdom. In other words, when Jesus is king, all blindness, all deafness, all lameness, and all muteness will be eradicated conditions. Which brings us to our other question. If Jesus healed then, why does he not heal now? Why did he do it for them but not for me? And may I suggest to you, and I don't mean this in a trite way, I don't mean this in a trivial way, but I do think that that's what the text is teaching. 
If you are in Christ, he has done it for you. And I, I, I don't just mean that spiritually he's forgiven your sins. No, I mean that physically and even in, in, in terms of things like sickness and illness, he will one day heal you if you are in Christ. He, he has done it for us. He has done it for you. He has done this by coming into this world as the long-awaited Messiah. And by going to the cross to bear the sin of the world upon his shoulders and by defeating our greatest enemies in sin and death and by doing what was required to undo the curse and, by, and, and to guarantee a future world that will be free from all the blemishes of this world. If you are in Christ, because of the cross and because of the resurrection and because of the promise of the gospel that Jesus is coming back and will make all things new and establish his kingdom upon this earth in which he will be rightly acknowledged as the sovereign king, he has and will heal all your diseases. All things are being made new. All sad things will come untrue. The desert is becoming a garden, and it's all because of Jesus. I think this is what verses five and seven are after, five through seven are after in our passage. I'll just consider very briefly verses eight through 10. Many of you will recall the images of the Ukrainians who were fleeing the country in order to get to safety and to freedom. And you would see these highways which were jam-packed in the one lane and completely empty on the other for obvious reasons. And for those Ukrainians, there was one highway they had to take to safety and to freedom. And similarly, there is only one highway that leads to Zion. There's a highway that leads to God. And this is where Isaiah ends his poem. And perhaps with the greatest amount of clarity so far in this text, Isaiah identifies who it is that will end up in the garden. He tells us that those who end up in the city of Zion, in the city of God, are those who travel there by the king's highway. But this is not a highway made up of stones as in Roman times or with asphalt in modern times, but rather this is a highway which represents a way of life. And hence this freeway is called the highway of holiness. In other words, those who will end up in Zion are those who value and pursue holiness. Or to put it slightly differently, it is those who love and worship the Holy One of Israel. And certainly this does not mean that only those who are perfectly righteous will end up in Zion. But I think it does mean that God is concerned about our conduct and way of life. And Hebrews instruct us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so our holiness, while not meritorious, is of great significance to God. And maybe the simplest way to argue this is that if you belong to God who is holy, and if you are united to Jesus who is holy, and if you are indwelt by the Spirit who is holy, what can you do but pursue holiness as a way of life? And I think that in the Protestant evangelical church, that because of the Reformation and because of the solas and because we want so 
greatly want to emphasize justification by grace through faith alone and not by works, which I think is a right thing to emphasize. I think that sometimes we have neglected and overlooked the great importance of holiness as a way of life for the Christian. So who will be in the garden? It is those who will travel there by the highway of holiness. But Isaiah has one additional answer. And Isaiah has one additional answer, and he says, or he teaches us, who will end up in the garden, who will end up in Zion, and it is the Ruths of the world. What in the world do you mean by that? It is the Ruths of the world, R-U-T-H, the Ruths of the world. You'll remember that Ruth was a Moabitess, and then she was, uh, she was married to a uh, Judahite, to, a, to, a, to an Israelite, right? And, um, and her, and basically this whole, this whole family tree was there. And so uh, Naomi uh, had married a man and then um, Ruth had, sorry, what, what is it? So it's Naomi, uh, Ruth, okay, there's Ruth. And then um, she, uh, her husband passed, okay? And then uh, her brother-in-law passed and then her father-in-law passed. And so the only person that she had left was her sister-in-law, and then also uh, her mother-in-law. The sister-in-law drops out of the picture, and then Ruth, even though she's a Moabitess, says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, that I want to return to you to your land and for your people to become my people and your God to become my God. Naomi, because I love you and because I trust in your God, I want to return to your land even though I am a widow, even though I am a foreigner, even though I am an outsider, even though I am completely helpless on my own, I want to go with you. And so she does. She returns from Moab, goes back to the land of Judah, and she's completely and utterly helpless. And yet, there is a man by the name of Boaz, just to sum up the story, who is basically, for all intents and purposes, he is closest in line to He's the closest family member alive who can help Ruth in this situation. And so he takes upon himself this role of a redeemer. He takes upon himself to help his family member who is in utter need and in utterly desperate situations. And Boaz acts as a redeemer for Ruth. He helps her in her need. He meets her in her hopelessness. He provides for every single earthly need that she had, and he, she, he actually takes her as his, her, his wife. She buys her, he buys her back. And, and this is, the text says that the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of Yahweh shall be in Zion. And so what this text is saying is that just as Boaz redeemed Ruth. And just as Boaz took care of the needs of Ruth, and just as Boaz took it upon himself to bear the burden of caring for Ruth, this is what Yahweh does for his people. He is our redeemer. He is our caretaker. He is the one who loves us and meets our needs, and he stands in our place and represents us out of great compassion and care for us as his covenant people. Friends, we belong to a great and marvelous God. He loves us. He cares for you. 
He shows compassion towards you. He forgives you. He redeems you. He guides you. He comforts you. And so he is a marvelous God so that when we return to Zion, when we finally arrive at the celestial city, Isaiah tells us that joy and gladness shall overtake us. Singing and melodies will burst from our hearts, our hearts and out of our mouths, and pain and sorrow will fade into a distant memory. And you know what's amazing about that? That here in this life, we're constantly chasing happiness. And the moment we grasp it, it slips out of our hands, like we're trying to hold jello or something. But in the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus, his rule will be so dominant. And that dominance will be so good that joy and and gladness will overtake you like an ocean wave that you cannot outrun on the beaches of California. Friends, I want two things to be ringing loud in your ears and perhaps one thing more than the other depending on your condition. If you're outside of the Lord Jesus, if you are here this morning because you're here with family or because your parents made you come or anything of this sort, or if you're here because this is just kind of what you've always done, but you've never uh, become right with God, I want the call of Isaiah and the warning of Isaiah that God will one day judge the world, including you, to be ringing loud in your ears. Judgment is coming. It is inescapable. Are you ready for it? But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, or if you're someone whose interest has been piqued by the things that we have been talking about, and you have interest in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, I just want to remind all of us that we would run to God this morning. I think, I think what Isaiah wants for us is, is not that we would uh, check mark the box of Christian and just kind of go off on our life on our own, in our own strength, but rather Isaiah wants us to behold our God. Isaiah wants us to be enamored with the greatness of God. Isaiah wants us to be strengthened by the almighty power of God and the power of God to redeem and to save and to be there for us in our deepest moments. God is good, my friends, and God is worthy of our trust, of our allegiance, and of our worship. And Isaiah, and Isaiah, Isaiah brings this section to a close. He wants you to remind you of the greatness of God and the greatness of the redemption that he has accomplished for us in his son, the Lord Jesus. And so while you still have breath, would you run to him? And while you are still awake here this morning and listening to these words, would you trust in him? Wholeheartedly and with complete abandonment, would you throw yourself upon the mercy of Yahweh, upon the compassion of Yahweh, and would you go to him as your rock and as your redeemer? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. God, there's a lot in that text, and I just pray that you would be at work in all of our hearts. Father, I I realize that there are some in this room who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, and I pray that you be at work in their hearts particularly. 
to help them to see their sin and their need for the Lord Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have committed ourselves to Christ, who are devoted to him and to his purposes, would you refresh us and would you revive us and would you cause us to recommit ourselves to him even this morning? You are a great God and a great Redeemer and worthy, therefore, of all our trust and all our allegiance. Would you help us to trust you and to be devoted to you this morning and in this coming week? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.